Trump's future gets cloudy. A moment of reckoning, maybe on policing in America after a ghastly killing of a black man and the slow motion train wreck of Russian infiltration of American politics. This is Beyond Politics and our weekly Balance of Power Roundtable. I'm your host, Matt Robeson, coming at you up the center lane to my left flank is former Democratic U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. And coming at us from the right is conservative commentator, analyst, and consultant, Alicia Preston. There's a theme to today's discussion. I think it's Lucy in the football, that effect where sometimes you feel like maybe this time you're going to get what you've been seeking for a long time, only to have it pulled away. And I think we should start with this whole question of, are we finally going to see the political demise of Donald Trump? Some interesting developments over the last few days. I think starting with Bragg, the Manhattan DA, presenting evidence yesterday, as we record this at the end of January 31st, 2023, presenting evidence yesterday to a grand jury about the Stormy Daniels hush payments during the 2016 campaign. It's laying the groundwork for potential criminal charges against the former president in the coming months, according to insiders who spoke to the New York Times. And on top of that's not the only investigation that seems to be coming to a head. Fulton County, Georgia, DA Fannie Willis, could bring 2020 election-related charges sooner than federal investigators. And her comments in court last week have some observers on notice, according to the AP. Alicia, let's start with you, because you're the Republican on the panel. Uh, let's talk about the future of your boy, Donald Trump. I My know, boy. I'm gaslighting you here. I'm yes. gaslighting you here. You're a never-Trumper. <laughs> Is this Lucy in the football? Is something fundamentally about to change for Donald Trump, or are we just looking at yeah, he's going to skate by again. I don't know. I can't speak to the legal side of this and if he will or will not be indicted on various things. But my side, I think, says it all. I think for most Americans, we're just tired of there always being something. He visited New Hampshire, which is a big deal because that means he started his campaign trek through the early states. He went to South Carolina and it came with a flop other than the people who are already and will continue to be diehard Trump supporters. The rest of us didn't pay attention. I couldn't tell you what he said when he visited my home state. I couldn't care what he said when he visited my home state. And I think that was the response from the first in the nation primary was, okay. And by the way, is DeSantis running? Is our own governor Sununu thinking of throwing his hat? It's just not the same conversation that it was four years ago. There's not the excitement. There's fatigue. And so regardless of what happens from a legal standpoint to Donald Trump, I think there is a real fatigue in the electorate. My concern is, does he get the nomination? Because there are a bunch of Republicans who still support him within the party, and that will ignore those independents or undeclared who will not vote for this man. Moving before forward. we And before we bring Paul in, let me just ask you this. Could you give our national viewers and listeners some insight? As a New Hampshire Republican insider, the AP was reporting that they asked around 10 prominent former Trump backers in New Hampshire. And they say that only three say that they're on board again for 2024. The rest cited exhaustion, as you're talking about with Trump's controversies, exasperation at the constant drama and a desire to move on from Trump's loss in 2020. Trump uh, last week picked Stephen Stepanek, someone you know very well. He's a former to lead his campaign in the state. He was the co-chair of Trump's 2016 campaign in New Hampshire. He's a, an outgoing state party chair. What is the vibe? What's the scuttlebutt going on? It's okay. You're just among friends here. What is the discussion like 
among Republicans in the state. I think it's what you just said and what I indicated is that for a lot of Republicans in the state, they've moved on or they're ready to move on. And I think that's a reality. And yes, some of my friends who were diehard Trump supporters all the way through even the 2022 election are just ready to move on. See that this is not a winning formula. New Hampshire gets a lot of attention because we're the first in the nation primary state. The eyeballs are on us and we don't want to lose. We don't want to be the ones that prop up and re-promote the guy who the rest of the country is all set with for the most part. And like I said, there is this core group of Republicans, probably 40 to 50% of them, that are going to vote and support Donald Trump. That is a fact. And then the problem becomes how many other people are in the race and where does that 60, 50 to 60% Republicans who don't support Donald Trump go? Do they go to DeSantis? Do they split the vote and Donald Trump gets the nomination? And then it's not just New Hampshire across the country. And that's a big wonder out there. You know, what's interesting with the Steve Stepanek being the chair of the Trump campaign is he was the outgoing chair of the Republican Party. Donald Trump was in New Hampshire to speak at the annual meeting of Republicans. And so it was his parting move to invite the former president to be the keynote speaker of the Republican Party. And I just said, and I got in trouble and got picked up nationally. I got in trouble with some of my Republicans. I, I tweeted out, oh, so we learned nothing from November. Brilliant. And some people didn't like that apparently. And But when Michelle Malkin's blog puts me in a quote in there, I felt starstruck by myself, even if it got me in trouble. But anyway, I think that's the reality. A lot of us are going, you didn't learn. Brilliant. Why well, is listen, he there? So first of all, you found out the principle that when we used to, Paul Hode's staff in Congress, we used to tell him when he'd say, hey, what are you going to do to get me in the newspaper? I'm like, Paul, we could get you in media anytime you want. <laughs> I can't guarantee that it'll be good press, but we can, <laughs> we can get you coverage anytime you want, depending on what you're willing to say and do. So Paul, look, let's turn to you. Former prosecutor, Paul Hodes, former U.S. Congressman, Paul Hodes. Hit us with this kind of confluence of law and politics here. What do you make of apparently these two investigations coming to a head with possible criminal charges? Are they legally significant and are they actually politically significant? It seems like a deal that people have forgotten, but it's significant because it's the New York DA who seemed reluctant to go after Trump, but now he's got the Stormy Daniels things working. And on the other side, you got Georgia on my mind. You got Georgia on my mind and stormy weather. Donald Trump's going to have a lot to sing about in the orange jumpsuit. The good thing is that these are state prosecutions and they're not ham as hampered by what seem to be the cautionary political considerations that may be at play in all the various federal investigations of Trump. At the state level, there's a much lower barrier to indicting and prosecuting Trump on state charges, and they both hold significant peril for Trump. Now, if, if he was indicted on state charges, if he was convicted on state charges, whether he'd ever see a day in jail, who knows. But the fact that if he is indicted, if he is tried, if he is convicted on state charges, that certainly adds to the sense of fatigue about Donald Trump and his antics, because really he's he's become more a clown than a politician. As far as Trump goes, he's in legal peril. He's going nowhere. The Republicans are finally beginning to turn against him. All right. So, Alicia, true or false, you have a poster of Chris Sununu on your wall, a la Corey Feldman, 1987. No, that would be creepy even for me. <laughs> That's the takeaway from today's balance of power. Creepy even for us. That's our new tagline. Our new tag.
I think, Paul, you've landed on, if there's a sense of groupthink among national analysts and pundits and panelists, it's that the dynamic you were talking about is maybe the way that this ends up being how Trump survives, which is, first of all, he's diminished. So other Republicans aren't afraid of him. That's point number one. So what that means is you're going to see some of these Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Chris Sununu, Christy Noam, and Ron DeSantis types flooding in. And that means you might have a 2016 scenario where the field is so wide, you have a collective action problem, and there is not enough coalescence around one Trump alternative, unless it's DeSantis, and he's able to, with his unshakable knot of acolytes and supporters, he's able to skate through even with a minority of the Republican Party. I think the other movie we've seen before is we see this, it's the Lucy and the football thing. We see this, oh, here's a new set of charges. Here's a new finding. Here's a new indictment. And it never diminishes him politically. This is a man who was found guilty of using his charity to steal from veterans, okay? That did not diminish him politically. I think the problem for Democrats is that we've had this kind of Watergate-inspired model in our minds that there will be a scandal and it will bring him down. The kind of boss tweed 1870s New York Tammany Hall model of all Ain't of a sudden happen. there are charges brought and the political ring is broken, the shine comes off. I don't think that's the model. I don't think that's what's going to happen. If there's a way forward here to rid ourselves of Trump, it's going to be something like what you just outlined, Paul, where he's and diminished, but the Republican Party is able to coalesce around an alternative, and he's beaten. I don't think I don't think he goes down in an orange jumpsuit. I think he goes down in a string of primary losses, and he's embarrassed out of the party. Alicia, what do you make of that? Is that does that ring true to you from what you know of how the Republican Party operates? I think to your latter point, that would. That's where my concern lies is does he have a string of primary losses or does he hold on long enough and the field is wide enough that if he can clinch 40 percent of the Republican Party, he gets the nomination. Right. You don't have right. to get 80 percent. You need a minority can make you win. And the problem there is I don't think unless the Democrats are on Kamala Harris, I don't think Trump can win the presidency. And so as a Republican, I would like a Republican, not Donald Trump, a Republican of conscience and fundamental beliefs and core principles of the Republican Party to be in that position. And Donald Trump cannot win unless you guys put up the worst possible candidate you could, which would be Kamala Harris or potentially Joe Biden. But let me also say this, put politics aside, neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump should be running if only because of their age. They're too old. Neither one should be on the ticket. Forget everything else. They're both too old. As With to your age other part, comes wisdom. Yes, With and then comes, comes senility. Wisdom. Age comes wisdom. So, Paul, since you're not that old yet, are you saying you have not yet achieved wisdom? Oh, uh, see what I did? The best, the, to your point, Alicia, that one of the best reads on the internet the last few days was uh, McKay Coppins doing some reporting for The Atlantic. And he found that basically Republicans have no strategy here. And so now their new strategy is what Peter Meyer, the recently defeated somewhat centrist Republican from Michigan, described as actuarial arbitrage. There's a euphemism for you. What he means is 
Donald Trump is old and fat. So we're just hoping he's going to die soon. That's oh this is the Republican. This is what they're saying is like, we don't actually have a strategy to defeat him. Maybe the Grim Reaper will take care of this for us. Wow. That's a, that's just, that's a well, real, pol- that's a political, that's a political strategy. Yeah. I don't wish death upon anyone. Exactly. Uh, that is not my cheering here. I'm just hoping that the core, the cult of Republic of Trumpism slowly fades away as you indicate it may now on the, you're right about the strategy of this Watergate theory of this is going to be the case that gets them. And here's the problem with that theory now is Mar-a-Lago and the Mar-a-Lago raid and the classified documents could have been that, to be honest. A lot of Republicans peeled off on that. He's got classified documents. He won't return them. The FBI has to go in. That was the line for a lot of people who were holding on to Trump. That was the line for a lot of people. But what happens, and part of it is we were shocked that there were classified documents anywhere outside of secure locations, for whether it's Mar-a-Lago or somewhere else. The problem is that's over now. Not legally. I don't know what the legal matter is going to be, but that is over now as that piece wait, wait, of wait, you're wait, done wait, 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 because wait, wait. everybody's got classified documents. Wait, one wait, thing wait, that wait, shocked wait. us most. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Matt Robeson. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you'll love because I really enjoy it. It's just chock full of smart, engaging, surprising interviews and reports that go way beyond the usual partisan bludgeoning. You know what I'm talking about. The show is called the gist. It's the longest running news and commentary podcast out there, and it has that kind of staying power because the host, Mike Pesca, just puts forward these really interesting arguments and asks great questions. You'll definitely hear things you don't agree with right next to arguments that make you say, damn straight. Plus, he's pretty funny. Some of the recent segments that I've really enjoyed, he tried to understand the Never Kevin Caucus. Yes, they're nihilistic, but also explained how they're acting in their own rational self-interest. He interviewed Michael Imperioli, you know, from The Sopranos. How about his interview with the guy who ran Stakem's Twitter account and Harvey Weinstein's prison consultant? If any of this sounds interesting to you, listen to The Gist every evening wherever you get your podcasts. The shock was not that he had classified documents. The shock was he had hundreds of boxes of classified documents and he kept lying and kept and he stole them and he wouldn't give them back. That's the shock. It is not, as I've said before on other shows and on this show, I think it's not unusual for classified documents to make their way to places where they're not. It's not a good thing. It's not, it, everybody tries, mo- most, mostly everybody who's in an executive position at the top of the government does their best not to take the classified documents home. And or then what it, Jimmy they, did, which is he built them into the walls of his Habitats for Humanity, which I think is a good use for it's it. It's a good Brilliant. use. We classify well, 50 million though. documents a year. So that's, that's about or, as good or, a use. Or as if someone they, who... But if they find them, they give them back. So the gravamen, as I used to joke with my friend Ed Markey, he'd always come up to me and say, the gravamen of the complaint. And I don't know why, because I once used the Wait, word is that a legal gravamen. Term? I once used the word gravamen with him. Yeah, it's a, is that really? I've that's never a real used that term. term. The gravamen didn't, of the complaint. Didn't the Mike gravamen. gravamen run for president? No, that was Mike Griffin. No. But I anyway, don't know what that the means. The gravamen is that he Mike stole Lindo? the documents and he wouldn't give them back, and he lied about it. That's the real. That's the real problem. But yeah, what but I'm saying is, right is politically. Yeah, politically, I get right. it. Politically, you politically, think the that issue was is the dead. Yeah. I'm not sure the issue it is, is dead. But what I do am saying is that the state prosecutions probably are livelier problems for Trump than the federal, at least in the short term. He's trying to get his campaign up, and there's this steady grip of the state stuff, which seems to be moving just in, as they say, 
inexorably. But I think that is also, it connects back to something you were saying a moment ago, Paul. I know it was a dig at Chris Sununu and his inability to put the person he wanted in a state chair. But one of the signs that you can look for, one of the tea leaves you can read about someone's diminishing influence is their inability to put their people in key positions throughout party infrastructure. One of the things that I was concerned about, I think a lot of analysts were concerned about in the run-up to 2020 is that even if Trump lost, he had so remade state parties, the state party machinery of the Republican Party in each of the states with his own people. He had inserted his people into so many key positions that he would be unshakable. They had literally rewritten all of the primary rules to favor Donald Trump. They had their fingers on the buttons of the Republican infrastructure. So one of the interesting things we talked about last week on this show was the race to be the RNC chair between Ronna McDaniel and Harmeet Dillon. Actually, Mike Lindell was also in there. He got four votes. Former New York rep. I voted for Lindell. I need a new pillow. And I voted for Lindell because he's the pillow guy. He has yeah. slippers now, too. And I love me some soft slippers. Sure. Pillows for everyone. But buried in the fact that Harmie Dillon was full of it and never as close as she claimed, Ronna McDaniel absolutely wiped the floor with her, was a very interesting little nugget that two candidates that Trump endorsed for RNC leadership positions, the co-chair and the tre treasurer, lost. And Arizona GOP chair Kelly Ward, who's a Trump diehard and an election denier, got walloped in her bid for secretary, 118 to 36. And so I, I, to me, as significant as some of the legal things are these kinds of signs that his sway in the party is just diminishing. His endorsement, which was never as much as popularly believed, is becoming even less, even among Republicans. And can I point out that you mentioned the New Hampshire governor's choice didn't win the chairmanship. The governor's choice is the former two-time New Hampshire co-chair for Trump's re-election campaigns. The guy that didn't win was the chair for Trump's re-election. So that's saying something as well. Every one of, both of them supported him, but this guy had a very high position in the campaigns. I, so I, oh, go, Paul. I guess what I'm taking away, though, from all the things we've talked about is distinguish between Trump and Trumpism. Because with DeSantis on the rise, you've got Trumpism, A, you've still got a strong streak, the strong streak of MAGA Trumpism at work in the Republican Party. The cult has not reformed, the cult leader is diminished. And there's a difference there. DeSantis can do very well by, by continuing to brand himself as the banner carrier for Trumpism, but not being Trump, because the personality, people are tired of the personality. They're, apparently, Republicans still buy in to all the crap he's peddling. I think the point here is that you don't psychologically break a cult mentality by confronting the cult members with reality and forcing them to change, forcing them to give up their adherence to the cult. We proved this in a classic psychological study written up in a book, When Prophecies Fail by Leon Festinger 60 years ago. This was where the term cognitive dissonance came from. He studied mm. a cult and they believed that doomsday was coming. Doomsday did not come. So the psychologist went and interviewed the members of the cult. Do you still believe that doomsday? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, we believe in it. And they gave complicated, justifying reasons for why they rationalized. And the point is that kind of doubling down is what from people who are fanatical cult members, like people who are in the cult of Trump. We are not going to break the cult of Trump 
within Republican circles by confronting people with, hey, do you realize that he's a Russian asset? Or, hey, he's just been indicted in state court or at the federal level. That's not going to force them off their position. It's going to make them double down. What you are going to see is maybe an erosion. Maybe some people who are not fully in the cult begin to just be exhausted, be overwhelmed. What these people in New Hampshire were telling the AP, what Alicia is picking up with her thumb on the pulse in Republican circles in New Hampshire, where they just begin to drift away. It's a softer kind of persuasion, but that may be what gets us there. And let's not forget, there are degrees of this Trumpism support. There are those that for whatever reason, believe they bought into the idea that he's speaking for the little guy. I don't know why they believe that, but they do. There's a group of Americans who felt they were unheard for decades. And for whatever reason, Trump convinced him he could be their voice. There's those. <clears throat> then there's people, there's cult of personality. And then you've got this extreme cultism, right? You've got this QAnon conspiracy. There are people who still believe that before the end of Biden's term, Donald Trump will be restored to the White House. And there's all these, you mentioned the cults of when doomsday is going to come. There are people that genuinely believe, they've read tea leaves, they've heard from whomever, that he's coming back and there's always a date. And when the date passes, they move it and say, this part of the calendar was read wrong. And it's this bizarre, but they believe it. I see it on social media and it freaks me out. But most Trump supporters are not that level of cultists, but they exist. It's the pedophile so, pizza peddlers. It's the pedophile pizza peddlers. Yeah. Oof. Look, I, so I think the verdict, at least on this panel, is it may be as far as these new prosecutions, it may be Lucy in the football, but only if you define success as we're going to kick this football, this particular football and hit the field goal. But that's not necessarily the way Trump comes to an end. And I think I, I think we agree on what that might look like. All right. We have to move on from a topic that's super serious, but at least a little bit fun, talking about the political end of Donald Trump, to something that's merely deadly serious. The killing of Tyree Nichols after a traffic stop in which he was kicked, pepper sprayed, and beaten to death by five and now a sixth police officer who has been charged in Memphis. What I want to ask about here on this panel is, are we once again having a moment that we've had so many times before where we think, okay, here's where the reckoning comes. Here, where the, here is where there's going to be some collective political action that breaks across partisan boundaries. Or are we going to once again descend into our partisan camps behind the trenches and nothing is going to change. Paul, you obviously as a former member of Congress know how these dynamics work. What do you think? The short answer is nothing's going to change at the congressional level. Sad but true, nothing is going to happen. There is some, there's nothing to be said about what happened. It's horrific. It continues. Black and brown people are targeted by the police and beaten and stopped and killed with a blinding and sickening regularity. But nothing's going to happen in Congress, in my view. There's too much partisan, it's too much partisan gridlock at this point for real progress around police reform. What is interesting, or I don't know if that's the right word, but at least in this case, there was a rapid showing of the video. There is 
in addition to the five officers who were dismissed and charged with murder, there is a continuing investigation now into other actors or non-actors at the scene. The medical responders have been terminated for failing to do what they should do. They're, they're, more is happening more quickly around this terrible incident. That's the only glimmer of any kind of hope I can offer. It makes me sick to say it, but I don't see any congressional action. Alicia, any thoughts? Because Tim Scott, the Republican South Carolina U.S. Senator, also a Black man, has renewed his push for passing the George Floyd, the George Floyd Justice, Justice and- Act. There are There were some negotiations going on over a year ago, including with Cory Booker, another Black man, a U.S. senator from New Jersey, a Democrat. And they got a little held up on the issue of whether they could condition federal support for police departments on progress in violence statistics, because there was an accusation that any conditioning of federal support would amount to defunding certain police departments. And of course, that is now a third rail in Republican politics. Can't speak of that. There was also a little holdup over the issue of the degree of prosecutorial immunity that police enjoy. Do you see any room here for a political compromise? Look, I have read all the provisions of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, and the fact is some of them I don't think should pass. And I don't let what happened in Memphis is so egregious. It is so outrageous. What happened to George Floyd was terrible and awful and a man died. But I'm sorry. I think what happened in Memphis is worse. You had several police officers. Now, I didn't watch the video. I'll be honest. I will not watch a man be beat to death. It took me several weeks to watch George Floyd's video. And the only reason I did is because there was more controversy and I felt I couldn't weigh in unless I saw it myself. I don't think that's the case in this scenario. Everyone universally agrees this man was beaten to death by at least five uniformed police officers and that it's all over video. And I don't need to see a man get murdered. But what happened is so extreme. But here's the reality. Nothing in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act would have prevented it. These guys are thug murderers. They were brought in the Scorpion Force, completely different situation. And they beat a man to death knowing that they had video cameras running. And then while the audio is still running, discuss how they're going to cover it up. Didn't he reach for my gun? Didn't he this? I mean, they're not going to care that they have qualified immunity. They murdered someone on video. Nothing in this act would have prevented that. And I think that's what we have to look at. There are some provisions I support. I'm all for a lot of it deals with federal law enforcement, by the way. I'm all for requiring body cameras and dash cameras at all times. There's some other technologies in there. I'm not for eliminating qualified immunity. And just because I think there's a lot of confusion on this, qualified immunity for a police officer does not mean he can do whatever he wants and not be held accountable. What it means is if you can't just frivolously sue. If a police officer has knowingly broken your constitutional rights you can still sue him civilly but what it would do is who would be a police officer it would open the door wide if you take out qualified immunity to anyone can sue any police officer for anything at all and that police officer now has to defend himself hi we are a very litigious society i watch judge judy people sue each other 
every day just to see if they can win or get a settlement. No one would be a police officer. It would be incredibly dangerous. I also don't support a provision in there that eliminates the right of local law enforcement agencies, particularly big cities like New York or L.A. or Chicago, from having military-style equipment, the transfer of that equipment to them when the military no longer needs it. You know, what can be done? I have no idea. I don't know how you stop murderers from murdering somebody, whether they're wearing a uniform or not. The complete disregard for human life is dumbfounding, and I don't think you can legislate that away. I think you hold people accountable, put them in prison. I'm not a lawyer. Paul was a prosecutor. Second-degree murder sounds good to me. I think that's how you prevent these things in the future. I don't know what the answer is. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. I agree that this is an extremely difficult issue to talk about. I can't ignore the fact that the group of us were discussing this. We're all white. And so it's very hard for us to characterize the level of the reaction altogether of our fellow Americans who are Black. And I want to be very sensitive about that. One of the problems with this entire discussion and this entire issue is that it falls into the race nexus. And what I mean is it's unavoidable and true that race is at the forefront of the problem here. We are talking about the disproportionate killing of Black Americans, especially Black men, at the hands of the police. That is the core issue. And at the same time, there is another highly related issue that Alicia was just referring to, which is the level of violence, the level of impunity with which police act in this country, the level of authority we have given police to act in this country. When driven by fear of crime, fear of violence in our communities, we give police a tremendous amount of deference. Now, I have police officers in my family. I am not trying to disparage police officers. And you can tell by the caution with which I'm choosing my words, and I'm still probably going to screw this up, that this is so hard to talk about without offending someone. And that's the inherent problem here, is that we should find a way to come out and say, yes, there is a clear, un, it, unambiguous issue that has to do with race here. And we need to confront that head on. And at the same time, there is a clear issue with the police ability to act with impunity that we need to confront here. And I'm not impugning all police officers. But Kurt Bardella, who was another staffer in Congress at the time I was, he was actually a Republican staffer. We actually used to play pickup basketball together when he was a staffer for the Oversight Committee going after Democrats. And then he became a never Trumper and a, and a Democrat. He actually comments on MSNBC. He posted on Twitter the other day that when he was arrested as part of a protest, the police by rote kept saying, stop resisting, stop resisting. Why? Because they know that's a cover for any action they want to take, that they can claim, oh, was resisting arrest. So that's why I broke his shoulder, because I had to put him in a hold, right? 
And so there is a core problem. And I believe that police officers, good police officers, care about this more than anyone because they don't all want to be tarred with this brush, that they hate bad police officers, violent police officers as much as anyone. So I don't have a contribution to how to solve this other than I think it starts with identifying the fact that there are two closely related problems here and they both need to be addressed. I don't believe that it's just a problem of racial bias. It is clearly that. It is also a problem of the core way that police officers act and the level of violence and immunity and impunity that they act with. I'm going to defend law enforcement here. Look, I agree with one portion of what you said. That is that the good law enforcement officers, good cops hate this stuff happening because it puts a buck on all of them. I don't agree that systemically police officers are violent or racist and that in most cases by that 90 plus percent law enforcement are there to do good things. They risk their lives every single day to protect civilians for not a lot of cash. The reason stories like what happened in Memphis make international news is because it is so not the norm because it is not systemic because it is rare and we shouldn't act as though this is normal because it's not. Law enforcement have a tough job to do. Most of them are good. And you're 100% right. When these type of things happen, it, it hurts them to their core because that's not what they do. And that's not why they do it. But I think if we take that approach and we say, we've got to do something because cops are bad, cops are violent, cops are racist. You can't solve a problem if you don't know what the problem is. And in my opinion, there are racist cops, there are violent cops, but that is not law enforcement as a whole, or certainly not even close to the majority. Look, when I was a prosecutor, I worked very closely with police. They were police in New Hampshire, a largely white state. But I can tell you that I certainly respected and admired the work of the members of the mostly New Hampshire state police uh, that I worked with at the time. This was this was a long time ago, but they were reasonably well-trained. They were reasonably well-disciplined. I spent a lot of time with them. I spent a lot of time with them as witnesses. I spent a lot of time investigating crimes with them. So I understand the deference and respect that we give police because they have a hard job to do. It is a, it's a really hard job. At the same time, I would commend to this discussion and to anybody who's listening or watching a July 2020 article by Jill Lepore in The New Yorker. Um, the article is titled The Invention of the Police, and the tag is, why did American policing get so big so fast? The answer mainly is slavery. So the roots of both urban policing and policing in general, frankly, are in slave patrols that white people put together to suppress any hint from the slave population that they would rise up. That and I, we have a, so there's the a nub of the genesis of policing in systemic racism in this country. It's really inarguable. And I'm not giving any history lessons, but you combine that with huge income inequality and the overwhelming presence of the number of guns we have in this country and the entire in interaction between police and members of minority populations in this country becomes fraught with bad history and a tinderbox of potential violence. I don't have anything to add to what Paul just said about the first point, which is the racial element of police violence. But I want to just resp respond on the second point to Alicia there. 
And I think that this exchange demonstrates why it's so hard to talk about this issue because it does get sucked into if you level a criticism or not even a criticism, you state a fact about police, it does tend to get cast as you are attacking the police. Well, I'm not well you just said it's a fact that they're racist. I think that would be I did not really say that. the definition did, of opinion. I did not say it's a fact that they're racist. I said that it's unambiguously true that there is a racial element to what we're seeing in police violence in this country. You said the same thing, right? The incidents that you highlighted, the George Floyd killing, the most recent Tyree Nichols killing, clearly race is an element here. So that's unambiguously true. I never said police are inherently racist. And Let's I never forget because we're eliminating the elephant in the middle of the room. And it doesn't matter to me because I think they should go to prison for their lives. But the five original police officers that were arrested were black themselves. So to say this is a white person problem and we, with no, George no Floyd. Said it was... No one said that. No one said that. No one said that. Over the last 30 years, from 1980 to 2018, more than 30,000 people have died at the hands of police in the United States. In the last few years, it averages about 1,000 people. And according to a study cited in The Guardian just last year, about a third of people killed by police were fleeing at the time. So I don't think there's a way around saying that is too fucking much to have a thousand people a year killed by police, a third of them fleeing. And I don't know how to talk about this issue in a way that's both supportive of police, which I am, and also can state a plain fact like that and say, you know what? We have to get a handle on this because police act with too much impunity. And there has got to be a better way than seeing a thousand Americans a year killed at the hands of police, a third of them running away at the time. So a couple thoughts. Number one, throwing out statistics like a third of them running away. I would need to know the situation. Is he running away to go murder somebody? Is he running away because he did? Or is he running away and got shot in the back and wasn't a danger? Those are very significantly different situations. And so to just throw statistics out to support your point without the backing individual cases, you can't do that. That's what creates this disdain for police. We throw these numbers out and we don't even know what we're referencing. But more importantly, let me ask you this. Why is it when a police officer commits a crime, murder in this case, all police problem. Why when a teacher has sex with a student, all of a sudden we don't say all teachers are pedophiles. Look, there is this weird situation where there are firefighters, an odd number of firefighters who are arsonists. And yet we don't say all firefighters are arsonists because a couple each year are. And yet we do it to police. And it's statistically the number of bad cops is probably equal to the number of bad anybody in any industry. And yet we like to come down on law enforcement because they're there to keep us in line if we break the law. And I guess a lot of people don't like that. So I would suggest that you've erected a straw man argument there because I am not saying, and Paul is not saying that all cops are bad or that all cops are racist. As a matter of fact, I explicitly said the opposite. And so you said it's you, systemic. If it's systemic, that's through the system, There is, which it, would incorporate it, all of it. It does not mean that every cop is bad. It means that we have a problem that pervades an entire system because it is across the country and it is widespread. If you have sex abuse happening in the Catholic Church, you have a systemic problem, right? And it does not mean that every priest is bad. 
again, we have to find a way to be able to say things that are plain facts without you're, saying, I'm saying well, I don't is, think they're plain facts. You're saying they're facts. Well, you're, if you're I'm disagreeing with your facts, I'm saying I don't think they're facts. But you don't have any. You can't declare a fact if somebody disagrees Children, with you. What you're doing this is my exact point: is that you're taking something. All right, if you disagree with the facts here, go ahead. Do I'm saying research. it's not a fact. How do you? Who are you to declare that it's a fact when half the country disagrees with you? In well, what you're, position you're, do you uh, come with? Doing saying, that kind oh, of it's cut a fact. whole cloth. You're just saying, yeah, I don't like that, so I'm just going to declare it not a fact. All right. No, I, I don't think it. it's true. It's from. I it, totally disagree with you that there's a systemic problem within law enforcement Post, in this country. The Guardian, I don't the give a damn project. if the Washington Post says it. I so really what don't. you're doing is you're disagreeing with facts that you don't like. No, I'm disagreeing with you. That is a fact. I do not agree. Let me state this clearly. I do not agree. There is a racial systemic problem in law enforcement in the United States of America. The question that Matt started this section with was whether or not there was a chance to pass a police reform bill in the United States Congress. This discussion in which an educated, intelligent, otherwise sane person disputes facts by saying, because I don't know about them, they're not facts, is, I think, underlies my pessimism about whether or not anything real will be passed by the U.S. Congress. And what I would suggest, and I'm not going to argue about facts, there are studies clearly backing up the facts that Matt has talked about. I think we're not going to solve this in this show. I think we're all going to go back and do a little bit of uh, follow-up work on this and possibly over beer. Although now that Paul, Alicia, and I are not in the same state, that's going to have to be a virtual beer. And I know we promised listeners at the top of the show that we might get into the slow motion train wreck of Russian infiltration of American politics. We're not going to have time to do that in this show, although I would commend to you the outstanding conversation that Paul and I had with Greg Oliar, who's a writer who has looked into this fascinating history. We're going to be doing a lot more on that topic in the weeks ahead. So we'll have to wrap up this one. For Paul and Alicia, I'm Matt Robeson. We will see you next time.